0: SCP-001 Jewel and Karar Part 5 The Foundation's investigation into the fallen Davic Empire has so far been largely unhelpful when it comes to their concerns with the Church of the Broken God and the Abominate. They've learned now how exactly Mamjul and the Covenant fell, as the three-pronged army Led by the Black Star, swept across Asia after crushing a money ROM, easily beating back the Davites and sending them into retreat. The Black Star, a reality bender empowered by his god, the Abominate, was able to sink an entire continent and wipe all of the Davites' history, culture, and identity from the records. What's more, the remaining Deva, residing in the astral plane, are now also facing their end of days, as the Scarlet Maharaja is no longer able to support the dream that they reside in, and no one is willing to take his place. Now, in the final part, we'll see the Foundation and the research team dealing with disaster not in the past, but in the present. Let's continue. Two hours and forty-four minutes into Galanus' projection. As they learned about the fall of Momjul, the various sonar equipment placed in Momjul's ruins by the diving team began reporting localized underwater disturbances. At the same time, several covert monitoring buoys that had been spread in concentric circles around the location began pinging the bridge of the FMS Phantom, reporting multiple unknown objects detected in the vicinity. Personnel from the Phantom quickly contacted Overwatch Command, reporting the situation, informing them that they have reports of multiple unidentified flying objects moving southeast at high velocity towards the ships. The objects are moving in excess of 450 kilometers per hour and are en route to arrive in 13 minutes. Overwatch Command tells them to activate Protocol Westchester and patch them through to Captain Hickman. Video logs show various researchers and personnel in the mess hall eating meals and engaging in casual chatter. They are suddenly interrupted by alarms sounding throughout the ship and lights flashing red. Security personnel, both ship security and Alpha-1 troops, spread out in the large room and firmly escort researchers and other personnel to their assigned quarters. Throughout the rest of the vessels, Similar experiences unfold as bulkheads are sealed and researchers are packed into their labs and sleeping quarters. In the psychotronics lab, several alpha one personnel move in, sealing the door behind them and take up defensive positions around the bodies of Galanus and Greaves. The remaining security personnel quickly move through the facility, grabbing weaponry from armories and opening crates from storage rooms to hand out rifles. After receiving weapons, a number of personnel make their way to the top deck while others go lower. Across the top deck, sailors, security personnel, and alpha one operatives move to battle stations, activating and loading chain gun emplacements and cannons arranged across the top of the phantom. A number of large hatches pop open, filling the top deck with smoke as a dozen small missiles rocket away, turning into the distance. In the lower decks, gunners crowd around the firing computers, activating the large automated cannons on the top deck, raising their barrels upward, and firing another volley of missiles into the distance. With two minutes until the objects arrival, a number of explosions are visible in the distant air, and dots become visible on the horizon exiting the smoke clouds and rapidly increasing in size and proximity. They are moving extremely quickly but separate out as they near the ship into at least 30 to 40 different figures. A number of them fall into the water, damaged by the missiles, but approximately two-thirds of them continue approaching. The sun is high overhead, but even at a distance, the light gleams off their bronze forms. The automated chain guns begin firing at them indiscriminately, and Foundation personnel begin firing small arms as well. The chain guns fire and reload themselves constantly, switching between targets. The swarm of figures swoops overhead, each one now clearly a highly augmented humanoid with large bronze wings. A female, with the largest wingspan on an intricate set of white and gold wings, hovers at a distance, then rockets around the ships, far outpacing the guns following her. The rest of the bronze-armored troops charge forward and phantom personnel report to overwatch command that they're under attack. Overwatch command copies and has scrambled naval support from the nearby facility, but it may take some time for them to reach the ships. A few static ridden explosions are heard in the background, and captain hickman comes onto the comms, out of breath, informing command that the attackers are the mechanites. A number of the mechanites fly low and grab hold of security personnel. Lifting them into the air and dropping them into the sea or onto the metal deck, as chain guns swing around and lay suppressing fire onto the cloud of mechanites. One of the huge guns swivels on its base, following the largest cluster of mechanites through the air before firing. The shell collides with one of the armored figures before exploding on impact, dispersing the cluster and sending them sailing through the air. As the smoke clears, the figure it impacted sails through the air and slams into the deck of one of the ships. The deck of the ships shakes slightly, the waters around the phantom growing rough and frothing, and for a moment the mechanites hang back. With an explosion of spray and foam, two dozen large bronze-armored figures rocket out of the water, slamming their swords into the sides of the ship and begin to crawl up the hull. Security personnel move to the gunwale, leaning their weapons over the sides and firing straight down. One or two mechanite skulls shatter under the hail of gunfire and fall back into the sea, blood spreading into the water. The bullets harmlessly bounce off most of them as they continue to inch their way up the sides of the ship, so the personnel begin to cover one another as they swap out to armor-piercing rounds. At the same time, the aerial mechanites make another pass over the ships. This time, pulling out fulad spears and driving them through the chests of security personnel. Hickman requests air support as several of the flying mechanites land on the deck and engage personnel in close quarters. The chain guns are directed at them, hammering them with rounds, which halts their advance but fails to pierce their fulad armor. The boarding party on the phantom begins to reach the top deck and pull themselves over. They are distinctly humanoid, but tall and heavily augmented with mechanite prosthetics and implants. What little of their skin visible under their armor bulges with subdermal cables and wiring, and they are armed with what appear to be primitive long rifles. On command, several sections of the deck of the phantom rise up and out, forming makeshift cover which the security personnel hide behind. The large caliber rounds from the mechanite weapons however slam into the barricades at high velocity, a few tearing completely through personnel. Overwatch command informs the captain that a patrol group of the indian navy has been requisitioned and is being sent over, along with some fixed wing aircraft. They'll amnesticize the personnel afterwards, as under no circumstances can the Mechanites take the ships. The remaining aerial Mechanites land on the decks of the ships, engaging in close quarters combat. Under heavy machine gun fire, a handful of them drop to the ground, but the Fulad armor is proving to be too resistant. The security personnel cry out for reinforcements, and through one of the doors, A group of hooded and armored individuals exit, their shoulder pads emblazoned with the sigil of the thaumaturgy division. They proceed to form a small phalanx, with one of them drawing a sigil in the air that expands into a moving, translucent barrier. They press forward onto the deck, the barrier trembling but holding under the mechanite's assault, and the security personnel move to support them. The thaumaturges move forward, coming into within a few meters of the Mechanites, and Dr. Carrick holds the barrier while the others brace themselves against the ground and whisper. A few moments later, green, expanding vines creep out through the cracks in the deck and wrap around the ankles of one of the Mechanites, causing him to crash into the ground. An Alpha 1 operative leans around the cover and empties a magazine into the back of their neck. Dr. Carrick yells out that the process is too energy intensive, and they can only get one at a time, as the phalanx is temporarily pushed back by one of the mechanites charging them. On the other ship, Alpha-1 personnel flood out and lay down suppressing fire from their weaponry, which proved to be slightly more effective, but still failed to stop the advance. Captain Hickman tells all personnel to hold the line, and reinforcements are on their way but one agent cries out that they're not going to get there in time. Meanwhile, Greaves, Galanis, and the Rajmata hover in the air above the ships, watching over the battle. Dead personnel and mechanites litter the decks, and the gunfire is deafening. From a bird's eye view, it's clear that the mechanite advance is slow but steady, moving inch after inch towards the bridge and the access to the lower decks, Greaves asks what the hell they're looking at, and the Rajmata explains that this is currently occurring in the material plane above Mamjul. Galanis realizes that the Mechanites must have caught the emergency equipment transfer they did to fix the projection induction, and Greaves orders the Rajmata to let him out right now. The Rajmata, however, says that this is a massacre, as their weaponry and even their primitive understanding of David magic cannot hold a candle to the Mechanites in their prime. Grieve says that he doesn't care, though, and needs to be let out. The Rajmata is confused by this, asking him if he would walk into certain death, and Grieve says that those are his men getting slaughtered out there, and they'll find a way to turn the tide. Even if they can't, the least he can do is die alongside them. Glanis says that she cannot keep them here and the rajmata agrees, saying that she is not keeping Greaves here, his mind is. They have been meeting for a year, and not once in that time has she ever shown the power to trap him into the projection. Only his mind can do such a thing, as his current state is caused entirely by the object in his brain. Galanis asks how she can possibly know that, but Greaves just asks if he's dead. The Rajmata says that he isn't, but both of them are in a torpor, from which they are unlikely to awaken, and certainly not before the Mechanites kill his men, make it to the lower deck, and slit his throat along with those of everyone else on board. She knows this because the Scarlet whispered it to the Maharaja and him to her. Their future is written in the trees. Galanis says that that can't be right and there has to be something they can do, as the firefight continues to rage down below. The Rajmanta says that there is, as she has told them of how Karar is collapsing, and how the strain has sucked out the last vestiges of the Maharaja's energy, sapped into nothing after almost a thousand years. The idea of the Eternal City is a lie, as the astral projection was never meant to be an afterlife. It was only a matter of time, and the foundation has accelerated that. The maharaja is dead, karar is dying, but if the scarlet could select a new host, not only would the deva survive, but much like the black star when he had his god's favor, turning the tide of this battle would be trivial. Galanis remarks that the rajmata said that if a human tried to commune with the scarlet, they'd be destroyed but the Rajmata says that most would. She's been watching Greaves, however, and the Scarlet has told her that their people, the Foundation, are sliding towards a war none of them can prevent. He is a soldier, a warrior king, and he wishes to protect his people. She bids him to strike a new covenant, become their Maharaja, their king in slumber, and destroy his enemies. Galanis begins to say how completely insane that is, but Greaves immediately agrees. Galanis asks him if he's out of his mind, but he replies that he said he'd do anything. Galanis says that they'll find another way, as they can't let the deva return to power just to win one battle, but Greaves says that the rajmanta isn't just talking about this. There's a storm coming something bigger than the Mechanites, bigger than any of them, and the Foundation needs to survive. The vision begins to crackle and sag, like film put to a match, and the Rajmata says that they are out of time. She claps her hand, and the vision melts away. The group is now standing in the antechamber of the citadel, not in Karar, but the ruined throne room in Mamjul. The rajmata claps her hands again, and the wooden floor splits apart, curling back to reveal a hollow space. Inside lies the desiccated, mummified corpse of a man, skin stretched taut, a black headdress resting on his brow. A single red jewel is embedded into the headdress, shining like an ocean of blood. The rajmata bids Greaves to take the jewel just as the Maharaja took it from the roots of the trees so many centuries ago. Galanis begs him not to do it, as he doesn't know what he's unleashing, but Greaves reaches in and firmly pulls on the jewel. It resists at first, but then gives way, tearing out of the Maharaja's headdress and leaving behind a gaping hole. As he watches, the Maharaja's body falls in on itself, drying even further and turning into dust. The stone whispers to him, promises of salvation, of divination, of victory against the enemy. The Rajmata tells Greaves to place the stone where it belongs, and he steps over to the far wall, which contains the engraving of the tree of life, of the Deva and the humans dancing around it, and the scarlet watching over them. Greaves, as if in a trance, raises the stone, and the wall falls away, peeling back and receding, splintering into nothing, and revealing an infinite scarlet ocean behind it. It's a miasma of shifting and spiraling redness, stretching far into a horizon that cannot possibly exist. It speaks with the voice of a hundred thousand souls sacrificed in its name, as a great and terrible idea, as a god. It asks Greaves what he is willing to sacrifice, and after a brief pause, he simply responds with everything. The scarlet doesn't respond, as it doesn't need to, and instead it beckons forth. Greaves steps forward, across the threshold, into everything. It is around him, in him, the primal knowledge of what was before and what will be, the natural law written millions of years before any life existed. It is infinitely complex and at once deeply simple. He sees everything, the precipice they're on and the brink they are falling towards. Their universe, severed from the others, utterly alone. He sees Aram in his throne room in a money Ram, augmented beyond any specter of humanity. His eyes glitter with foresight and fear as he sees what Greaves does, and he is terrified of it. Greaves sees the Black Star sitting alone in a forgotten city on a forgotten island. A paper lies in front of him, and the weight of eras rests on his face. The power of something older than the universe itself courses through greaves, and he reaches out and touches God. We're then given the last few verses of the Song of the Deva, which read, As witnessed by Vaslarasaraj Sharat." seventh Rajmata of the Scarlet Maharaja. And after the waves crested over the spires and palaces of Mamjul, and brought the city low, and slew in one fell wave the covenant, then for a time Mamjul rested, alone and rent at the bottom of the sea. And there it lay as the Black Star marched onwards, through the center of Asia, against the forces of the Nalka, and took the world into a great silence. And there it continued to lie, unaware of the events beyond the waters, until the ruins of the once great were happened upon by an old enemy, one who had forgotten its own past. And such were the Deva immortalized in the pages of the document, defiant of their prison of non-existence and in this way, the song of the deva began to write itself once more. Back on the ships, Overwatch command informs hickman that satellite 15 of the atreus array is approaching their location, with an eta of 6 minutes, but they're not sure if they have that much time. A large amount of the security personnel have been killed, and their corpses litter the deck. The mechanites are nearly at the bridge, only held back by the few remaining personnel and alpha-1 operatives, who huddle behind the barricades. The deck of the ship then rumbles again, but this time the force is coming from below. Hickman informs overwatch command that their subaquatic monitoring equipment is giving some abnormal readings, but they're cut off as the ship shudders, and the mechanites pause their advance. In the center of the three ships, a circle of red light begins to form in the water ten meters across. It steadily increases in brightness and intensity, until a single figure, wreathed in fire, breaks through the surface of the sea, immediately boiling the water around it to vapor that sprays outward. It rises into the air, a blur of red shooting up to twice the height of the phantom, and moving until it is hovering over the deck. Hickman tells Overwatch Command that there's a red skinned, nude figure flying above the ship, and it doesn't appear to be Mechanite. It's glowing a corona of red light, and the Mechanites have just stopped and are staring at it. The figure then reaches one hand out and waves it across the dozens of Mechanites on the deck of the Phantom. The vines, left abandoned by the thaumaturgy division, suddenly engorge with thorns and violently outstretch, far more aggressive than they were before. They wrap around the torsos of the mechanites, pulling them to the ground, and burrow through their eye sockets and mouths, tearing them apart from the inside, and leaving pools of viscera and blood-soaked augments. The remaining mechanites turn their weapons on the floating figure barraging it with spears, rifles, and conventional firearms. Several of the flying units take to the air to flee, but the figure lazily waves another hand and they stop in mid-air, clutching at their implants. The bare skin where their augments are attached turns yellow, then green, then black, rotting in real time. It oozes with pus and disintegrates, the dead tissue tearing away from the living their implants going with it, and their limbless torsos fall screaming into the sea. The figure then turns its attention to the handful of remaining hostiles, who are preparing a retreat, about to leap over the edge of the ship and back into the sea. Some even make it, but they do not survive the fall, as their bodies split apart and vines and roots formed inside of them tear through their skin and flesh as they force an exit. Many are simply bisected, their bloody halves falling into the sea and sinking, turning the water red with blood as it pools around the ships. In the course of forty seconds, the figure eviscerated over a hundred mechanites. Hickman tells Overwatch Command that the figure massacred all of the mechanites, with no further friendly casualties. Command tells Hickman to treat the figure as hostile. The figure then begins to descend from its hovering position, and it becomes clear that it is essentially a disembodied nervous system wrapped in a translucent red layer. As it descends, it begins to take firm shape as bones grow and muscles knit themselves into place, although the figure never grows skin. It stands well over three meters tall, with large horns on its head and the surface of its body is inscribed with symbols and markings that pulse to an inaudible rhythm. As it reaches the deck of the Phantom, Alpha-One operatives fan out from behind cover, supported by security personnel. They surround the figure in a circle, guns drawn and pointed at its head, although it does not react. The operatives then pause as the figure looks up and raises a hand in greeting and the team recognizes the figure as lieutenant greaves. In the aftermath, the figure, now temporarily designated as scp-001-king, surrendered to security forces and was detained in a secure holding cell aboard the phantom. Interrogations however were a failure as it insisted on speaking first to galanis. Galanis was brought into the secure cell four hours after they awakened from the astral projection and were debriefed. Galanis enters the cell, and there are a number of automated turrets encircling the ceiling, all aiming at Greaves, with a thick pane of glass separating the observation chamber from the entity. Galanis calls out to him as Lucian, and he says that perhaps he once was, but now he is so much more. He made the decision that Galanis could not, of apotheosis and escalation to a higher truth. Galanis says that he can't be Greaves, as his body is still lying in the psychotronics lab, but he says that that's just the material body, while he is the immaterial body, the soul. He has reached out and become one with something so much greater than he or Galanis. Galanis replies that he became the scarlet Maharaja, and asks how could he be so stupid. Grieve says that he did what he had to do, and now he sees the whole board laid out in front of him. The total mass of their history beginning to end. Galanis counters that he was the one that was supposed to make sure this didn't happen, but Grieve says that the situation changed. He's a soldier. And when you see armies trampled, entire cities rent to ash, and nations burned, you have to do something. Aram made the wrong decision for the right reasons, as only a madman would see what is coming and elect to do nothing. Galanis says that they should have never interfered with the Deva to begin with, and Greaves replies that they shouldn't have, but they did, and he's the result of the new covenant. The deva realize that they are limited by their current means of existence, that they can only interact with the world through the foundation. He is now the vessel, and their power flows from the scarlet, to them, to him, to the foundation. Galanis asks about him, as they thought the maharaja needed to be dreaming to ensure that Karar survives, and Grieve says that he does. Soon he will leave. To fall into the endless sleep demanded of him, so that their allies may continue to exist and support them in the coming storm. Before that, however, arrangements must be made. Galanis asks what storm, and Grieve says that he sees past, present, and future, but that comes with a responsibility of care. The council will understand what he means. He would say more. But he is bound by the same magic that bound the rajmata to silence. Galanis remarks that it's enough magic to bind a god, but Greaves says that he is just a prophet. The scarlet is free to tell him the truth, and it has, but he simply cannot share it with them, so Galanis must discover it themselves. Galanis then asks about the arrangements that need to be made, And Greaves says that the Deva require certain concessions for their support, for teaching the Foundation thaumaturges their magic. Chief among them is being immortalized in the Foundation archives, something that will last beyond the song of the Deva, even as a new verse is written. Galanis is shocked at the idea of allying with the Devites, but Greaves says that we do what we must to survive and the deck of the phantom is littered with the bodies of those who didn't. The Mechanites are too dangerous for the foundation alone, and they are nothing compared to what rests on the horizon. Galanis refuses, saying that they'll find another way, one that doesn't betray the foundation's principles, but Greaves just says that that decision is the council's to make, and notes that they have already been trading information, support, and assistance. Galanis says that they can't take this to the council, as they were insistent that this wouldn't end up like a money rom. but here they are. Greaves responds by telling Galanis to rid himself of these petty insecurities, as they can become something greater than a cog in the machine. Galanis can shape their future, and he needs someone he can trust, a new rajmata. Galanis would answer to no one but themselves. And his will would be their will. This would be a chance to mold the society how they wish, with no judgment, no commitments to modern biases and bigotries. A perfect society, beyond gender and scarcity and suffering. Galanis vehemently refuses, and says that this isn't what they wanted at all, and this isn't how any of this was supposed to go. After a pause, Greaves says that that's disappointing, as Galanis might have been legendary. He tells them to go now, and take the terms of his covenant to the council, and see if they accept the help he wants to give them, as they understand the threat. Galanis asks him how they got here, and Greaves replies that Galanis led them here, letting themselves be pushed and pulled by the forces that surround them, Galanis was a vessel with no agency of their own, used and thrown away. Galanis counters that he called them a leader, and Greaves says that they would rise to the occasion, but they haven't. Galanis needs to take charge before it's too late, and then Greaves bids them farewell before demanifesting in a flash of fire and red light, leaving behind nothing but a few dead leaves. Galanis stands, staring at the leaves for a few moments, before turning and leaving. Three days later, on June 3rd, the O5s released a new edict, although Galanis was not invited to the deliberation session or to testify. The council approved 7 to 5 to establish formal diplomatic channels with the Davic empire, and occupy the role of the human element in a future devic covenant, when it is established. The specifics of the covenant will be worked out in a manner to benefit both parties and ensure mutual security. The Mamjul Karar Initiative's role is to be transformed into a diplomatic one, with academic study of the Deva allowing a better understanding of their culture and society as they pertain to the Foundation. SCP 001 King. Formerly Lieutenant Greaves, the current Scarlet Maharaja of the Davik Empire, is to serve as a channel for the thaumaturgic powers of the Deva, allowing them to be utilized by trained foundation thaumaturges. The Davik Empire is to support the foundation in any future confrontations against hostile anomalous empires. The edict also notes that the vote was taken and this measure is enacted in the absence of the administrator, who historically has handled diplomatic commitments of the foundation. Afterwards, Desai and Galanis sit and discuss how insane of a decision this was on the o5's part. Galanis remarks on how they can't understand what the council could possibly be thinking, and Desai says that they want to ally with the baby-sacrificing demons. Galanis says that this was a mistake, from top to bottom, and that they had an academic responsibility, but they were stupid and naive. There was no way this was going to go any other way than the foundation weaponizing the deva for their purposes, just like Amani Ram. Galanis failed then, and failed now. Desai tries to say that it isn't their fault, but Galanis replies that they need to take agency although they don't know how yet. They're trapped between a rock and a hard place, as the council is expecting Galanis to enforce this, to continue leading the initiative into something they can't possibly support, and did it all without so much as asking Galanis. Desai says that Galanis is still the project lead, and can demand an audience with the council, to demand an answer. Galanis was the one who saw the rajmata's visions, not the council, so they don't know what they're agreeing to. Speaking of the rajmata, Desai has no love for her, saying that the foundation protects their people every day, and does it without sacrificing their baser principles. Galanis replies that it's more than that, as there are two groups here, one that thinks the deva are all insane murderers and the other one that thinks that's a risk they have to take. Galanis doesn't take either side though, again saying that they are caught between a rock and a hard place. Galanis has seen the visions, and knows that the deva are not morally pure. Letting a culture with the morals of 3000 years ago out into the modern world is obscenely careless, but at the same time, they're not inherently evil and they don't deserve to be destroyed. The way that Greaves was talking scared them though, and Galanis doesn't know why. Not just him either, as the rajmata and even o5-1 all seem utterly convinced that humanity is about to crash into something, and Galanis doesn't know what it is. Desai just says that they'll get through it, because they're the foundation, and they always do. They sit in silence for some time, sorting through a huge stack of debriefing documents, until Desai grabs a black envelope from the stack. Galanis takes it and realizes that it's from Greaves, and they forgot about this. Galanis had asked Greaves to run a query on a term that kept coming up in their research, since he had a higher clearance level. Galanis opens the envelope and reads the document sitting in silence for nearly a minute afterwards. Galanis then swears, abruptly stands up, and says that they're going to do something they should have done a long time ago. Afterwards, Galanis uses the lay space communicator to speak with the o5 council, immediately asking them what the hell they've done. They talked so much about not wanting to end up like a money rom, and yet here they make that edict. 0 055 however counters that this is a success for them, as they now have access to a school of thaumaturgy that's an effective countermeasure to mechanite augments. They have a better understanding of the nature of these gods and the threat they pose, and now the deva are indebted to them. Galanis asks what they mean by indebted, and the room goes silent until 051 says that the details are still being worked out, but they're strongly considering Greaves' offer for a new covenant. Galanis says that they had a feeling, and they've spent more than a year studying them. The deva aren't evil, but this is not going to go how the council thinks it will. 051 says that he's afraid that that's a risk they're willing to take, and asks Galanis to just calm down. Galanis however says that that doesn't explain why they'd be indebted to the foundation, as the covenant is a mutual agreement. It benefits the deva as much as it benefits the foundation, so what are they getting extra? What do the deva even want, as they've been written out of history, out of reality itself? They don't exist in any material sense anymore, and they didn't until the foundation started looking at them. Once they stop looking, the deva will fade away again. They want something permanent, and they want someone to write them back into history. Galanis then suddenly comes to a realization, and says that they're making a deal with the devil. 0 51 assures them that he is acutely aware of the risks they're taking. Galanis says that he's been aware of them for 60 years, although O5-1 replies that he's not sure what they're referring to. Galanis says that Greaves used his credentials to run a database query for Blackstar to see what Galanis was locked out of. He found a database of verbal cognitohazards dating back to the original memetics division during World War II. The first record was for Blackstar. 0 051 has known about it since then, and Galanis has no idea what he knows or how but he's known something about all of this since 1945 that he never told Galanis or Greaves or anyone. O51, however, says that he swears he has no idea what Galanis is talking about, and only someone with level 5 clearance could have ordered those files sealed. O56 chimes in that they're not the only ones with level 5 clearance, meaning the administrator, and the room bursts into chatter about how they haven't seen him in years, and they wonder why he would even hide this from them. O5-1 calms the room down, and assures Galanis that they'll look into this, but in isolation it really doesn't mean anything. There are a thousand ways they could have randomly stumbled across something like that. Galanis says that O5-1 stood there in a money rom and assured them that he was a historian and that he wouldn't let this be exploited. O5-1 replies that he has people to protect, as another occult war is brewing on the horizon, and he's just doing what they can to avert it. Galanis is confused, and O5-1 asks them what the occult wars are. Galanis replies that they are secret wars of the anomalous world, occurring in parallel with mundane conflicts but the last occult war was nearly a hundred years ago. 051 says that that means the next one has had a hundred years to stew, or longer, and this time the threat won't be nazis with anomalous weapons. It will be something so powerful the only term they have for it is reality bender, the black star. He says that they all have their roles to play, and Galanis's is to follow the orders he gives. Galanis asks if they're going to stay on as project lead and execute this new directive, which 0 051 confirms. Galanis then immediately resigns from the foundation, saying that they're not going to be complicit in them weaponizing the anomalous. After the Manhattan Project, a number of scientists at Los Alamos couldn't handle the reality of what they've done and helped to create, and they couldn't live like that. 051 says that yes, he knows, as he was there. Galanis continues, saying that for all of his talk of making sure that Galanis didn't end up like Aram, he let Greaves turn into that thing the moment it was useful to them. They should have never gotten involved in this, and now they're cutting themselves off. 051 just says that that's disappointing, and Galanis replies that he wants to as well because he's a historian so he understands where this road ends O51 however just says that he has obligations and a higher calling as his principles can't be unimpeachable because then people die Galanis says that that mentality is used to justify every faustian bargain in history but O51 just shrugs and says that they're all slaves to something echoing the Rajmata's words. Afterwards, the Davic Empire is designated as Group of Interest 019 and classified as an ally of the Foundation. Additionally, the Foundation and the Davic Empire have entered into a formal covenant, a mutually beneficial anomalous agreement binding both sides to each other. This covenant is contingent on several factors, and may be broken off if either party feels it has been wronged or betrayed. The Davic Empire will surrender knowledge on thaumaturgy that is capable of being utilized against hostile threats. The Davic Empire will remain in the astral plane and make no attempts to forcibly breach through to the material plane, and they will not intentionally expose their existence, the foundations, or the anomalous to non-veil societies. In return, the foundation will act as the human arm of the covenant, affecting the material plane in the stead of the Davic empire, and a small number of personnel will be permitted to become temporary hosts of Deva, thereby significantly escalating their thaumaturgy ability. Additionally, as the Davic empire has been ontologically scrubbed from baseline reality by the black star, the foundation will take a leading role in restoring them. While they will not be given physical form, interviews with deva and the rajmata indicate that the presence of a physical, written record of the deva's history will significantly stabilize karar, and begin restoring the vast historical records in mamjul and across the indian subcontinent that were obliterated. As their presence in baseline reality retroactively increases, so will the thaumaturgic power they can supply to the foundation, and this effect will apply retroactively, so as the document is extended and completed, more ancient artifacts and ruins of the deva will be unearthed. This anomalous effect has been classified as scp-140, and has been applied to the current most complete record of the history of the deva, which is this document. Under containment protocol Herodotus, this document has been separated into five acts, each covering, in a parallel, a broad period of the deva's history from the song of the deva, and the events leading to their rediscovery. As such, this file has been designated the primary vector of scp-140, and it's recommended for perusal in its redacted forms by all cleared foundation personnel, because, as more personnel go through this document, the more the foundation's thaumaturgic capacity increases. As the Mamjul Karar initiative shifts into its new goals of training thaumaturges in deva magic, global foundation priorities are to be shifted towards the investigation and approval of thaumial class anomalies, particularly those effective in combat applications project olympia therefore has been expedited. Global threat level has once again been elevated to kenek 5, and project forerunner triad is to dedicate all possible resources to identifying, locating, and securing the final remaining city, the nalka city of black adytum. Following the ratification of the foundation deva treaty, and Galanis's immediate resignation, a helicopter was dispatched to extract Galanis for processing and amnesticization, with Dr. Carl Aberer serving as the interim project lead. Before they were extracted, Galanis was observed to enter the psychotronics lab for a period of 45 minutes. The event was only noticed by security staff after Galanis had been escorted by alpha one operatives into the helicopter and departed. The recording device associated with greaves lsap array was still active, and we're given a transcript of galanis's last astral projection. Galanis is in the throne room of the citadel, and once again the city is in an orgiastic sway with drumbeats ringing throughout, now with new joyous words. A new verse of the Song of the Deva is being written, and the Rajmata is seated on the throne, draped in luxurious shawls and silks. She greets Galanis, but Galanis says to spare the pleasantries, as they've resigned and she won't be seen any more of them. The Rajmata says that that is truly a shame, as for all their faults, Galanis was a remarkably innocent soul. It's unfortunate that wars are not kind to the innocent. Galanis would also say so, seeing what it did to her children. The rajmata's expression does not shift at this, and she asks what Galanis has come for. Galanis wants an answer, to which the rajmata asks if it's just one, as she's sure they have many questions. Galanis, however, says that honestly, no, not really as everything they've wondered about has been just about cleared up, no thanks to the rajmata. The rajmata says that she's not going to apologize for doing what she did to ensure the survival of her people, as Galanis's people would have done the same. Galanis replies that they did, and the rajmata agrees, saying that Galanis can't fault her for this, as the beauty of the covenant is that it is made with the consent of all parties, She did not force Greaves or the overseers into anything they didn't want to do. They simply saw the truth, that the only way they're going to weather the coming storm is together. Her entire nation drowned after falling under the sea, and standing from where she is, she can once again see the tides are rising. Galanis says that it's a new occult war, but the Rajmata counters by saying that it's the same occult war, the first war that never ended. It merely had a three thousand year old ceasefire that expired the moment the foundation unleashed a money ram from its sandy tomb. Galana says that all of them are so sure that the Black Star and his god are still out there, biding their time, and wants to know why. The rajmanta explains that she knows this because her master whispered it through the cosmos. She imagines that the overseers had a similar experience. The black star is not the true threat, however, but rather his God is: the Black Moon. Galanus realizes that they’ve heard the Black Moon before, as that’s a foundation passphrase, meaning that the overseers do know something about all of this. Glanus says that none of it matters anyways, as the foundation will likely amnesticize them very soon. The Rajmata says to take this time to ask anything else that they were left wondering about, and after a brief pause, Galanis just laughs and says it's the most trivial thing, but they promised one of their researchers that they'd ask. They couldn't figure out why the 3 prong army was called that. The Rajmata replies that a promise is a covenant, and it must be kept, explaining that they are named as such because of their insignia. Galanis says that they didn't see any heraldry in her memories, but the Rajmatu replies that it was as powerful a symbol as Black Star is a name, and it's not to be used lightly. It has been a long, long time since that era, however, and she claps her hands. An attendant approaches, carrying a curved black dagger reflecting the light around it. The attendant hands the dagger to the rajmata and removes their robes, as the rajmata uses the dagger and carves a symbol into the tender flesh of the attendant's back. Galanis is horrified, but as the attendant turns and shows their bleeding back to Galanis, there's a wide circle with three lines ending in sharp tips facing inward. Galanis realizes that the insignia of the three prong army is the same as the foundation's. The rajmata bids goodbye to galanis, and says that for what it's worth, she suspects that this is not the end of their story. Galanis was in a state of extreme distress as they were escorted to the helicopter, necessitating sedation. The sedative wore off approximately one hour after takeoff and shortly thereafter, the helicopter went silent and disappeared from foundation radar. We're provided a transcript of the last recorded transmission. Galanis wakes and asks where they are, and shakes their handcuffs. In the cockpit, the pilots do not react, and there are three soldiers at various positions throughout the helicopter, all armed and with covered faces. Galanis swears and says that they're not alpha one, as their patches aren't like greaves. An unknown figure comments on Galanis being perceptive, and they see a figure in a suit sitting and facing them, appearing to be in his fifties, with a short beard and close-cropped gray hair. This is the administrator, and he says that he supposes someone owes Galanis an explanation. With that, we finally bring the saga of Mamjul and Karar to a close, although it's hardly the end to this overall story. Originally, the foundation stumbled upon the ancient city of Amani Rom, thinking they found a treasure trove, but instead gained a brand new enemy and knowledge of an old one. With the Davites, the foundation hoped to avoid a similar predicament empowering an ancient civilization and bringing it into the modern day. In the end, they did exactly that yet again, even losing one of their personnel to the other side in the process, but this time things are a little different. The Davites are being brought back on the foundation's terms, as allies, and greaves is still committed to protecting the foundation interests, in a sense. The daevic magic will certainly be a boon to the foundation's war against the MechaNites and the abominate, or the black moon, but it's unlikely that the Davites are going to sit nicely and idly by as this war goes on. What the foundation certainly doesn't want is for the occult war to blossom into a full-scale war with the public's knowledge, although I doubt the other combatants are as interested in preserving normalcy. Even more worrying is the foundation actively contributing to scp-140, a phenomenon that could lead to Davite supremacy in the long run. We're also given one last bombshell of information at the end, with the casual revelation that the three-pronged army somehow ended up becoming the scp foundation, along with using the black moon deity as one of their most well-known passphrases. I won't begin to speculate as to how that happened, but we do know that the three-prong army consisted entirely of baseline humans, and they were the conquerors at the end as the other civilizations went into decline. Galanis is likely to learn a lot more about the specifics of the foundation's history from the administrator, who swooped in out of nowhere to rescue Galanis from a hasty memory wipe. We'll also learn all about how the Nalka or the Sarkites fared against the Black Stars army and what they've been up to in the meantime. Will the Foundation find another ally in them, an enemy, or perhaps something in between? For now, the Foundation's got enough on their plate along with the author of this saga, Rounderhouse. But this is certainly shaping up to be something quite special.